0: Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump Podcast.
1: Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 343rd episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we are doing something suggested by listener Josh Nash. And that is the forts of Mobile Bay down in Alabama. Looking forward to it. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew Bailey, Lauren, Paul, Cheryl with a CH, Will, Shelley, Christina with a CH, Melissa, Sheila and Manuel. Welcome to the crew, everybody. And now this moment in Oddity.
0: The moment in oddity was suggested by Mike Stribel. How does one get rid of a large rotting whale on the beach? It's probably not a question you've ever pondered. But if you live in a coastal town where dead whales wash up on the beach, you could face this rather large, stinky problem. This very problem happened to Florence, Oregon back in 1970. A large dead sperm whale was found putrefying on the beach, and this posed a real health issue. Officials needed to move it, but there was a big problem. Why, yes, we are referring to the size of the whale. This whale was too large to be moved. Officials came up with a great idea that proved to be a poorly thought-out solution. Why not dynamite the thing? And that is just what they did on November 12, 1970. Everybody came out to watch and all the local news stations covered the explosive event. And we bet they all wished they had just stayed home. Paul Lindman, a reporter for KATU, described it this way, The blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds. Yep, there were bits of whale everywhere. It slammed into the local laundromat and other buildings in the area. A large chunk of blubber crushed a car roof and everyone in attendance got a gory shower of blood and blubber. The hope had been that the whale would explode into little bits for crabs and birds to carry off, but there were still big pieces that the city ended up burying under the sand. One would think a city would not want to commemorate this moment in history, but Florence did. On June 13th, 2020, a new park was dedicated with a name that residents voted for in huge numbers. That name is Exploding Whale Memorial Park. And that certainly is odd.
1: And we have a podcast we'd love for you to check out. We Drink and We Know Things. Hello. Hello. I'm Tom. And I'm Andrea. And we're the hosts of We Drink and We Know Things, the podcast. We're a husband and wife comedy show. We cover all kinds of stuff from
0: UFOs to cryptids.
1: We also cover a lot of true crime and some paranormal.
0: And we do it all while getting drunk.
1: Yeah, we sit in our office, we have a good time, and we have some drinks. Every month we put out bonus episodes. We give you some cool stuff like creepypastas and the glitch in the matrix. So be sure to come and hang out with us. We're a weekly podcast. Doused in alcohol. And lit with knowledge. Clinkies. Clinkies!
0: And now, This Month in History.
1: In the month of July, on the 11th in 1985, the Coca-Cola company brought back their original formula after the huge blunder of introducing new Coke. I'm a big fan of Coke, and I'll never forget the day I tried new Coke. This was not a pleasant experience. Coca-Cola had been losing market share for years against Pepsi and other non-Cola drinks, so the company decided to reinvigorate their brand by introducing a reformulation. Taste tests with 200,000 consumers helped Coke to make the decision which new formula to go forward with. What Coke didn't realize is how attached weak Coke lovers are to that original formula calls flooded into Coke's hotline in their offices around the country. People hoarded the old Coke. There was a huge upheaval and Coke decided it would be best to bring back the original formula and they named it Coca-Cola Classic. Eventually new Coke became Coke 2 and now it is no longer available and Coke is just Coke again. And while the new formula was a blunder, the marketing goof actually worked wonders. It rekindled loyalty and love for Coke and many advertising experts call this an intelligent risk.
0: At the mouth of Mobile Bay in Alabama sat three forts, Fort Gaines, Fort Powell, and Fort Morgan. Fort Powell no longer exists, but both Fort Morgan and Fort Gaines are still here. All of the forts saw action in the Battle of Mobile Bay during the Civil War. Fort Morgan and Fort Gaines would also see action in the Spanish-American War and both World Wars. Many people died at these forts, and that has led to stories of apparitions and other paranormal activity. Fort Morgan is considered one of the most haunted locations in Alabama. Today, the forts are historic sites that can be toured, and there is even a creepy escape room for adventurous souls. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the forts of Mobile Bay.
1: Mobile Bay is a shallow inlet of the Gulf of Mexico that is 413 square miles, making it the fourth largest estuary in the United States. There's an abundance of seafood in the deep waters of the bay that comes up to the shallow coastline during the summer, and locals call this a jubilee. They easily collect crabs, shrimp, eels, flounder, and other fish. That sounds awesome.
0: I'll take all of it, but the eel... Well, no, I've had eel before, and it was actually pretty good. The eel, no. Uh-uh.
1: No. <laughs> I've had eel sushi, New. No.
0: Well, I liked it. <laughs>
1: this, <laughs> this God, <laughs> excuse me while I clear my throat. Really <laughs> <laughs> this bay is the only place in the world to have jubilees happen regularly. And it's funny, the only time I'd ever really heard the term jubilee was the biblical definition for it. Right. And I I believe, I'm trying to remember back, but it seemed like a jubilee was when you forgave all the debt and nobody had any more debt. But I'm not for sure on that. Spanish explorers were the first Europeans to map the bay and they named it Bahia del Espíritu Santo, meaning the Bay of the Holy Spirit. They would continue to visit throughout the 1500s. The name Mobile would come from a town established by Chief Tuscaloosa of a Mississippian Native American tribe named Maubila. This was located north of the bay and was destroyed by Hernando de Soto. The Spanish never had luck setting up a settlement, but the French did in 1702. Part of Mobile Bay is Dauphin Island, which is a barrier island at the mouth of the bay. Dauphin means prince in French, but it originally was called Massacre Island because the French found large piles of human bones there. This had not been a massacre site, but rather a burial mound that had been opened up by a hurricane. The French built a fort here along with a chapel, warehouse, and some homes. This would serve as a major port that passed through various
0: hands until the early
1: 1800s when it became the property of the United States.
0: The original fort to stand where Fort Morgan is now was Fort Bowyer, and this was built in 1813 by the U.S. Army. It was attacked twice during the War of 1812, with the British being defeated the first time, but forcing the American troops to surrender the second time. When the war ended, the Americans got the fort back and it served as defense until construction on Fort Morgan began in 1819. The fort has a unique design that has led it to being referred to as the finest example of military architecture in the New World. This resembles a five-pointed star and was designed by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and was constructed from brick, sandstone, granite, cement, ironwork, and mortar using slave labor. The name Morgan was chosen to honor Revolutionary War hero General Daniel Morgan. Work would continue on the fort until 1834. Across from Fort Morgan on the island of Dauphin, Fort Gaines would be built starting in 1821 from brick and mortar. This fort was named for Edmund P. Gaines, who was a war hero of 1812. Engineers decided that Fort Gaines was in sad shape, and a newly designed fort was completed in 1858. This is the shape of a Pentagon. During the Civil War, the
1: Confederacy struggled to defend the coastline, and they decided to focus on key ports. Mobile Bay was one of these ports, and it became the most important import location after New Orleans fell in 1862. Goods from Havana and the Caribbean were brought through Mobile, so the Union set up ships to block the port. The Confederacy would run the blockades with steamships, and one of the most successful ships was the CSS Florida, named for the best state in the Union, which was able to break through the U.S. Navy in September of 1862 and subsequently escape through the blockade in January of 1863, so it was able to come in and get back out again. There were three forts here around the bay, Fort Gaines, Fort Morgan, and Fort Powell, that had been partially built in 1862. And we didn't write a whole lot about its construction or anything about it because there's not much information out there. It was like they built it for this war and it's not going to make it through it. It never was fully completed and sat on Grant's Pass. They'd all been fortified, but when it came to gunpowder and actual defense, they were poorly managed. None of the forts were protected on the rear, and there were not a large number of troops. There were only 600 stationed at
0: Fort Morgan when the Battle of Mobile Bay started. The Battle of Mobile Bay started on August 5, 1864. Rear Admiral David G. Farragut led the Union forces, and he had brought 18 boats with his naval fleet. He would face off against the Confederacy led by Admiral Franklin Buchanan. The Confederates had fortified the three forts that guarded the bay with 67 naval mines across the entrance of the bay. There was just a small area left free of mines to allow their supply ships through. The minefield was flanked by buoys, and Farragut knew what they meant. He believed he could steer through the minefield fine, but this would put him close to Fort Morgan. Farragut gave the order... Damn the torpedoes. Four bells. Captain Drayton, go ahead. Jewett, full speed. One of the ironclad monitors was destroyed by a mine, but the rest of the fleet made it through. Fort Gaines dealt some heavy blows with their guns, though. Fun fact, Farragut called his device for removing mines a cowcatcher. Yeah, I don't
1: know what <laughs> relevance a mine and a cow have to okay. each other, but I'm not sure what the mines look like. Maybe that's the shape of them. I don't know.
0: Well, the ones that I remember seeing as a child, they have... Maybe kind of look like an udder of a cow. they have got the things that stick out.
1: That could be. They're like, bolts, kind of, yeah, they're like round with things coming out of them. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's the only thing Maybe. Think rear Admiral Farragut needed help on the ground and he planned a ground assault from the rear with the commander of the military division of West Mississippi, Major General Edward Richard Sprigg Canby. And why in the world do they need to have every single name that they were given put into their, <laughs> <laughs> their official name? It's like, do they actually go out there? Hey, Edward, Richard, Sprigg, (laughs) Canby. Get over here. (laughs) The two men decided that they could take the city of Mobile with a force of 5,000. Unfortunately, General Ulysses S. Grant needed troops sent to Virginia, and so he would not send more than 1,500 men. This meant an assault on Mobile was not possible, but the two men believed they could at least take the bay. Now with Farragut through the mines, this force of 1,500 men who had landed 15 miles west of Fort Gaines began making their way for a siege of the fort. They were led by General Gordon
0: Granger, and these soldiers came from Maryland, Iowa, Illinois, and Ohio. Confederate ships entered the bay and fired on the second column of the Union fleet. The Union ships closest to the forts continued to focus on the forts because they couldn't reach the Confederate ships with their gunfire. The Confederates dealt a heavy blow to the fleet and sank the Tecumseh, She was completely underwater in three minutes. Only 21 of the 114 men on board survived. Many of the ships in the bay rammed each other rather than firing on each other. The Union managed to capture one of the Confederates' most important ships, the ironclad CSS Tennessee, when the admiral on board broke his leg and the commander was unable to fight. Three hours had passed since the first shots were fired. Now a ground assault was ready to go, and Fort Gaines decided it did not want to get into a hand-to-hand combat situation and it surrendered. Fort Powell surrendered quickly and was eventually destroyed so that it no longer stands today. General
1: Granger then set his sights on Fort Morgan. Farragut fired from the bay and Granger attacked with his men, keeping up a barrage of artillery fire. They pounded Fort Morgan for two weeks. Can you imagine? Those guys in that fort were probably like, please stop. By August 16th, the Confederates abandoned two of the batteries, which allowed Granger's men to get closer. They continued their assault until August 23rd when Confederate General Page surrendered the fort. He was arrested because he did not honor the surrender agreement and destroyed munitions. So they had these agreements that they were supposed to be able to get all the ammunition and stuff that they had inside the fort. And he was like, oh, no, you don't. So he blew them up. This sealed off the bay and Mobile would fall by April of the next year. Both standing forts would fall into disrepair, but the use of Fort Morgan and Fort Gaines was not over. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers built a new fortification system for Fort Morgan in 1895, which concreted the batteries rather than leaving them brick. The latest technology in communications and electricity was added as well, and more water mines were placed in the bay during the Spanish-American War. The batteries also were equipped with 8-inch breech-loading guns on disappearing carriages. They refer to the carriages as disappearing because these guns could be rotated backward and down behind a parapet after being fired. This protected the gun from being fired on while being reloaded. The design is obsolete today, but can still be seen on display at various forts. After the war, many of the cannons and guns were given to cities to use in making memorials. We've probably seen some of those in cemeteries and stuff, too. They put a lot of cannons in cemeteries. This is a really cool design. I'm sure it's obsolete today because we really don't have forts like we used to have back then. I mean, you have bases and stuff, so you don't really need to have something that can like peek over the wall and right. then be brought down. But it was kind of like they were on these hinged
0: things that would pop them up,
1: and then you could pop them back down. Very cool.
0: Starting in 1900 and running through 1923, Fort Morgan was the largest permanent military base in Alabama. While World War I was being fought, there were 2,000 troops stationed at the fort. The post was ordered closed in 1923, but would reopen again during World War II for the U.S. Navy to protect the coastline. In July 1944, Fort Morgan was closed again and left abandoned, never to be used for war again. It has been listed on the 10 most endangered battle sites in America because its location leaves it vulnerable to erosion and damage. Today, the fort is a historic site that can be toured and features an escape room attraction called Espionage at Mobile Point. The official website of the fort describes it like this. It is the summer of 1864 and you are federal spies captured by the Confederate soldiers. The Battle of Mobile Bay was one of the most decisive battles of the war. Can you help the Union forces understand the defenses of Mobile Bay? Does a fort have an effective method of attack? Your job is to find the defensive map and escape route. Listen carefully. Wise captives have been known to escape. Step back in time to discover your fate. That sounds kind of like fun to me. Yeah, definitely. Fort
1: Gaines saw action in similar fashion as Fort Morgan during the Spanish-American War and both World Wars. Today, it still serves as a base for the Coast Guard. It was also used as a setting for an episode of MTV's Fear. The fort can be toured and features original cannons and a real working blacksmith shop. I love those things. I could watch blacksmiths all day. I
0: actually got to participate. Did you? In in college, yep. We had a blacksmithing class where we had to shod horses, essentially. We learned how to properly trim their feet, how to do corrective shoeing. Oh. And we got to fire up the horseshoes and make the shapes and correct things and actually work with it other than just on the horseshoes just to make whatever we wanted to make. It was pretty cool. That's probably why
1: we like to watch the Forged in Fire show. This is true. I love that show. Yeah, it's amazing (laughs) what they can make weapons out of. It's like, here's some junk metal over here. Make a sword. (laughs) Exactly. Both forts are also haunted, with Fort Morgan being considered one of the most haunted places in the state.
0: Much of the paranormal activity reported publicly at Fort Gaines was documented by MTV while filming their fear episode there. MTV had said that some Native Americans had been used as slaves and that they were chained together in a tunnel when the tunnel collapsed, burying them alive, and the claim is that the bones were never removed. This has led to people feeling cold spots and hearing disembodied footsteps. One of the most famous apparitions here is of a Native American woman who is wearing animal skins and covered in blood. There are also spirits of Confederate and Union soldiers seen wandering the grounds. One soldier in particular will follow people around until they exit out the front gate.
1: The interesting thing is, you know, they were making a big deal about that there were maybe these Native Americans that had been buried alive in this tunnel collapse. And that's why we have hauntings going on. But again, remember Fort Gaines is on Massacre Island, quote unquote. Right. This was literally a native american burial ground we always joke about that on other episodes about oh is it on a native american burial ground this literally was and it definitely was disturbed not necessarily by them at first a hurricane disturbed it but then they built this on top of it so that's probably why you have something going on here i'd be interested to know more about that native american woman though why is she covered in blood what happened there There had been a home located near Fort Gaines that was relocated to a different part of the island. It needed some refurbishment, and once this commenced, construction workers kept walking off the job. When they were asked why, they claimed that something was scaring them away. The problem got so bad that the refurb was stopped and the property sits abandoned. People claim to see faces in the windows, and they call the police to investigate, and they never find anyone inside. A mile up from the fort is a small park called Cadillac Square. Locals claim to see shadowy figures walking in the park, and there's one apparition that sounds really strange. This is a woman who has a bag over her head and digs into the ground as though she's looking for something. I have no idea what kind of bag or what is going on there. But as I said, this island had been a burial ground, so the opportunities for hauntings are wide open, which to me seems like Fort Gaines should be called the most haunted, one of the most haunted locations in Alabama, because when I went to look for stuff for Fort Morgan, There was a few things, but I had a really hard time finding any real stories. I mean, you you see the same thing posted on every single blog or website. It's four lines and this is it. And I'm like, if it's that that haunted, haunted. (laughs) yeah, I'm like, why don't we have more information? And I couldn't find anywhere that we'd had any of our paranormal TV shows visit or anything. So I don't know why this is considered one of the most haunted locations in Alabama.
0: The director at the museum on Dauphin Island is named Jim Hall and he claims that there is a spiritual residue left over from the burials. He said, even today, you can hear the Indian maidens singing at night to the beat of Indian drums. There are people who say that in the shell mounds at night, on some particular dates, you can see white lights emulating from the shell mounds, and that could have very well been the spirits. But then there was always the Indian chief. His name was Chief Doublehead, the six-foot red-headed Indian chief that walked the beaches at night, and he left phosphorescent footprints in the sand. People have driven by the fort and they have seen one of the females. I don't know whether she would have been a wife or a child or what, in a full dress with a full hoop skirt walking the parapets.
1: Fort Morgan is considered one of the most haunted locations in Alabama and there are several spirits here. A bomb went off in one of the rooms of the fort and it killed most of the men inside. Their disembodied screams are still heard on occasion. We're not sure if this was an accident or part of a battle. The man being kept in the barracks as a prisoner in 1917 hanged himself, and people claim to hear him crying at night. This old barracks is considered the most haunted spot in the fort. A young woman
0: was attacked and
1: killed in the fort, and she still roams around it as though she is seeking justice.
0: Mobile Bay has seen a lot of death, particularly at her forts. So it is no wonder that there are reports of paranormal activity. The fact that Dolphin Island was once a burial ground just adds to the mystique. Are Fort Gaines and Fort Morgan haunted? That... Is for
1: you to decide. Well, just another thing to check out in Alabama, which is a little bit closer to us than other locations. This is true. And I love going to these old forts. They're a lot of fun to Explore. run around in. Yeah. <laughs> we want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We did get a couple of emails. The first one is from one of our longtime executive producers, Kristen, who works in the ER, and she said, FYI, I dissected bodies, a few. We had a ceremony for them at the Heinz Chapel in Pittsburgh like the ketchup. It was cathartic and the families and medical students all were there. It was a great day as we felt better that they were on board with it. So I just told her, well, that was kind of cool to hear that because obviously I know that's what they do in medical schools now. A lot of people donate their bodies to science and so they dissect them and such. And I never really thought about what happens to them afterward. Do you cremate them and then send them back to the family or whatever? And so it's nice to hear that they actually do a ceremony for them too. Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of people whose bodies get donated to science may not necessarily have had any family. And that's just kind of oh, what they do be. with them. I know that my parents were planning on
0: doing that, but they want to be cremated afterwards. So.
1: Yeah, because you think about homeless people and stuff, they don't have anybody to make yes, any decisions for them. So sometimes I wonder if that's what they do. And then they give them a burial later. So thank you for sharing that with us, Kristen. And then we got an email from Logan. Hi, Mrs. Kelly and Mrs. Diane. I want to say I love your podcast. And I'm 11 years old. I found this podcast a few months ago on a drive back from Tarpon Springs, Tampa, Florida, and have been listening ever since. I've been on a few close ghost encounters and love hearing about and experiencing the paranormal. Your podcasts are funny, historical, informative, and spooky. I've been listening to this podcast in the car, on my bed, on the sofa, and so basically everywhere. I watch <laughs> I a few episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. I watch a few episodes a day. It's a good thing he's not watching the episodes literally <laughs> because like right now, you and I have been out working in the garden and we've got hats on and oh, sweat and no makeup. <laughs> <laughs> you do not want to see us. We just learned you guys are in Central Florida. My mom and I would love to meet you guys. My mom will send a comment soon. I've been to the Ringley Museum, Ybor City, the Biltmore, and many more places you've done podcasts of. So awesome. This kid has been around Florida, I'll tell you that. A personal favorite podcast of mine is the Trans-Allegheny Insane Asylum. Ooh, That's a kind of scary one. It is don't listen to any of the terrible comments. Keep doing great. (laughs) So so I wanted to thank Logan for this. And Kelly, it was so cute because he'd actually put the comment on the website and then emailed it to us too, to make sure that we saw it. (laughs) And when I went in to approve the comment on the website, I noticed that there were three more from him and they were comments like, don't take this to heart, or I don't even know what this person's talking about. And so I went back to look at the comments that he was putting it on. And so I was like, one of them was this one that we'd gotten back in 2016. Mm -hmm. And I believe I talked about it on air at the time because it was somebody (laughs) who went on for paragraph after paragraph after paragraph about all the chit chat and how it took 16 (laughs) minutes to get into the material. And I was basically trying to explain that nothing on here is chit chat. It's all content because it's not commercials you're listening to. It's us talking. He went all the way back to a comment from 2016. He must have been reading all of the comments. So I just thought, well, that's so cute. And then he went through and was like defending us
0: to the comments. That is awesome. (laughs) He's very invested. He's a true Blue fan. Yeah. So
1: thank you, Logan. And as we're going to find out, he's going to be entering the cemetery too. I know. So he's going to get to know Mort very well. So thank you, Logan, for writing us. Then we had these interesting stories shared in the crew. From Lisa, I've been working in a nursing home for about 13 years. They recently added a hall of rooms in the back of the building. I have multiple residents putting on their call lights to tell me to get rid of the man. I tell them there's no man. They proceed to tell me that he has a bald head and he's see-through. He's no longer living. So now when they see the man and I go into the room, I will politely ask him to leave. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Creepy. Then Teresa shared, So just sitting here chilling in hubby's recliner when I happen to look down and see a shadow go from the chair to the sofa. We lost our nine-year-old mastador last month, and I've been anticipating a visit from her. She was my baby. I told my daughter when she and her fiancé helped me bury her, it's okay, she'll come visit. My daughter's fiancé doesn't know about our family's quote-unquote experiences, and I think he believes I'm nuts. I feel very comforted tonight by the thought that Sadie may stop by to visit. Well, you know, Teresa, we definitely think that your pets can come back to visit you, so I have no doubt that that shadow... Moving from the chair to the sofa was uh, your Sadie May getting a little more comfortable. And then Dean wrote, so deciding to share another true story. I was performing in Grand Junction, Colorado at a pub in a mall. Now I was middling opening at that point in my comedy career, but I was selling t-shirts, CDs, and boxers at the time. So I was loading things into my car, preparing to go back to the hotel, order Domino's, the only pizza available for delivery in that part of Grand Junction at the time, and watch American Justice in the first 48. This was a little over 10 years ago. So I just put my merch in my trunk when I hear a voice say, hey mister, my heart hammers in my chest because I thought I was alone, and I turn around to see a boy of 14-ish and another of 8-ish. I'm overwhelmed with dread. The older boy asked me if I could give them a ride home. They had seen a movie at the mall, but their mom had been unable to come and get them. I felt cold and scared. I told them I wasn't from Grand Junction and didn't know the area, so I wouldn't be any help. The older boy at that point said that they could just wait in my car. I almost said yes, and then I noticed the younger boy's eyes, all black. I looked up and saw the older boy had the same all black eyes. I quickly got in my car and drove away. Looking behind me, the boys had vanished. To this day, I try to find rational explanations for what I saw and felt, but so far, none fit. Well, this sounds like a classic black-eyed children's story from Dean I don't know exactly what black-eyed children are. I tend to think that they're more on the alien level of things. I know the original story that was told about them, I think they eventually found out that it was just a hoax. But I've heard so many stories that are very similar to this one that I believe there's something out there that is like these black-eyed children. I just know if I have a couple of kids who are trying to force their way into my car or my house, definitely not letting you in. Jerry and Tracy of Hillbilly Horror Stories came on down to Tampa They sure did. It was so much fun. Yeah. And so when they said that they were coming down, I'm like, well, we'll meet you halfway. So we (laughs) met in a place called Plant City and we had a really nice uh, dinner at at a barbecue place and got to visit. And so that was great.
0: Yep, It was good company.
1: And then they headed over to St. Augustine, which is one of our favorite cities in the whole world for the first time for them. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And I got to see their pictures. It looked like they had a great time and they hit all the, the hot spots. So. Well, we want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Christina Greggs for your one-time donation. And welcome to the cemetery, Amanda and Logan Temple. Mort is going to be moving you guys into a
0: snazzy mausoleum. So awesome. Thank you guys for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. Hey, Logan, wanna help me dig some graves? Be sociable, drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump, like the page. Get rid of a large rock. The blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds. It's a lot of alliteration, <laughs> and everyone in attendance got a gory shower of blood and blubber. That's so disgusting. <laughs> Golly, I'm getting thick throat right now. At the mouth of Mo- mobile, mobile, mobile. Come on, Kelly, get your accent on. You can <laughs> say
1: mobile, right? Spanish explorers were the first Europeans to map the bay, and they named it Bahía del Estuario. <laughs> what the hell? that? Estuario sounds like Espiritu, <laughs> <laughs> and they named it Bahía del Espíritu Santo.
0: The Confederates dealt a heavy blow to the fleet and sunk the and sunk the and sunk the. I can't Tecumseh. say that. I know Tecumseh and Sancta Tecumseh.